Hello, hello, and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. We are your hosts, and I am the Bull Bay. And I am Kirsten Michelle Sells. <laughs> Bay and I are so stoked to bring you this season that talks all about the science behind love, sex, and relationships. Everything from your brain on love to why we obsess over our favorite television characters to how science and tech are changing our relationships with each other. For this episode, let's talk about how we all learn about sex in the first place. First, we'll talk with Jacqueline Friedman about her work teaching people of all ages about our bodies, sex, and healthy relationships. And later, we're going to talk with Janelle Bryan about her 10 years of experience introducing sex education curriculum in schools. This episode of So Curious is going to be sex educational. What do you remember about your experience of sexual education? So my first sex ed class was being a little kid homesick from school, and my my mom couldn't take any more days off and she was the high school sex ed teacher. So I would sit in the back of the classroom and color or whatever. Um, and I was little, but not processing what they were all saying, but being like, this is silly. <laughs> um, and then I remember growing up, I went to public school. So I wouldn't say that the sex education was excellent, but it was something. I definitely felt like I was that little know-it-all in class because I was like, um, actually, because <laughs> that's how my mom raised me to be about sex ed. How about you, Bay? What do you remember from sex ed in the Philly public school, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. I remember it being clunky mm. and not really straightforward, just all over the place. I remember um, like a stop in the school day. Us and several other classes would go into, I guess, an auditorium or a presentation room mm-hmm. and watch slides. It was kind of like a shock factor kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But I just remember it being awkward for everyone, even the the adults. You could tell they didn't really want to like engage with sex ed in this particular manner. Yeah. And I remember also like not really being clear about what they were clearly warning us about. Mm-hmm. All of this was like warning, warning. And I just didn't know. I was like, what were they warning us about? Like I didn't quite get it. And um, I feel like you can always tell that your teachers are clearly being censored by what the school wants them to say versus what they as adults who care about us want to say, you yeah. know? It's yeah. awkward sh- all around. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Let's face it. There's a lot about sex that we never learned in school. <laughs> or at least not from actual teachers in school. <laughs> So I think this is a good place to introduce our first guest who knows quite a bit about how to help people keep learning real facts about sex and relationships in our modern world. Our guest is Jacqueline Freeman. Hey. 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 Really quickly, can you introduce yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. My name is Jacqueline Freeman. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the founder and executive director of Educate Us, Seek Us in Action, which is a national advocacy group building a movement of voters who are going to vote in good sex ed policy at the ballot box. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, something I appreciate is laying out the pronouns in introductions. Mm. Do you see that being a more common uh, practice or are people still slow to develop that in their, I guess, social language, social cues? I think it depends on who you hang out with. (laughs) Very much. I was going to say, I went to college in Center City, Philadelphia, in the neighborhood for acting. So we always used pronouns in everything we did. Um, And then after graduating and not being around such a progressive scene, I was like, oh, this is not universal yet. You know, it's still, it's not everywhere. It's totally about your own crowd. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, but as you might imagine, my work meetings, which are mostly with folks who advocate for sex education and related issues, it's pretty much the standard. Right, right. Which is great. Yeah. 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 First of all, I just want to say how in awe of your work I am. I grew up my my whole life. My mom was a high school sex ed teacher. And now as an adult, I'm a stand-up comic and I I travel around to colleges to talk to uh, 18-year-olds about um, consent and rape culture and all of this stuff. And yes means yes and no such thing as implied consent. And I just am so passionate about what you do. So (laughs) I'm super happy that you're here. (laughs) I did that circuit myself for a while. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because my first book was called Yes Means Yes and and popularized the idea of affirmative consent. Yes. And so I spent the better part of a decade being the consent lady on college campuses. Yeah. So that's, I'm so glad you picked up the torch. I talk so much about affirmative consent, how it needs to be verbal, sober, and mutual. And so much of that comes from your work. So I just, I'm super stoked that you're here. And I guess I was just curious off the bat, how did you get into this? What, what was your path to get into this career? It was a long and winding path. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time. <laughs> I mean, people ask me that, and I, I think a lot of times they want to know, how do I do this? And I have to say, like, when I was graduating college, I didn't know this was a career I could have. So I did not set out to have it. But what I did do was just set out to continually do things I'm passionate about. Right. And so I had a series of jobs. I did suicide prevention education with teachers and I taught self-defense and I worked at a feminist bookstore and ran an author series at a feminist bookstore. I mean, I, you know, I was in my 20s just doing work that was interesting to me and trying to pay the bills. And in in the in-between, I was a anti-sexual violence advocate. And that's what led me ultimately to publish Yes Means Yes with Jessica Valenti. Um, which was really coming to understand that if we're going to address sexual violence, we have to really just shift the entire sexual culture. And then once you start thinking about that, it does not take that long to start thinking about needing to change the way we teach sex education in this country. Mm. Would you say that these changes need to happen like faster or are they happening at a good pace as you see it? Well, right now we're having a backlash. Mm. Talk Uh more about that. I think that there Mm. are a solid constituent minority of folks in this country who are very uncomfortable with the changes that have been happening over the last decade or two about the shift in the sexual culture, the shift in understanding and acceptance that like gender and sexual orientation are diverse fascinating fields and everybody's a little different, right? And that stuff makes them very uncomfortable. And right now they're waging basically a war on kids and a war on schools to try and stop it. Um, And so I think that's really being contested right now. What would you say to someone experiencing discomfort from sex education? I would say that's really normal because none of us, almost none of us got the sex education we deserved. I mean, you might have because your mom was (laughs) a sex educator, but like most of us did not have sex educator moms and, and didn't get the sex education we deserved. And I think that there can be this feeling like, well, I didn't get that. And I, I, I'm fine. Right. I grew Mm -hmm. up fine. And I think that what I would say to folks who feel uncomfortable is like, "Yeah, yeah, I feel you like this stuff makes people uncomfortable, but just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong. What would you say the effect would be if sex education were to be taken out of school? I absolutely am against that. Now, a lot of schools around the country don't teach it already or are teaching harmful stuff as opposed, you know, which I would like to get taken out of the schools. I'd rather kids learn nothing than actively harmful stuff that Mm -hmm. promotes shame and misinformation. Um, But I certainly wouldn't want to see any schools taking out sex ed 
quality sex education that they're already teaching. If you scratch the surface with most parents, they'll admit that they don't know how to teach their kids about this stuff. Any more than we know how to teach our kids like AP physics, right? Like. I think a lot of parents during the pandemic learned to really respect teachers and yeah. miss them, right? <laughs> you should hope so, right? And so parents absolutely have a huge role to play in talking to their kids about values around sexuality and relationships. Um, but these are like legitimate fields of study and you can learn how to teach them well. And most parents don't want to and aren't equipped to teach them as well as a teacher in school does. It's, it's really a group effort. Like the parent needs to share values at home and the teacher needs to share the information in a way kids can absorb. When my mom was teaching, she was teaching in like the Philadelphia school district in, I'm going to say like the late 90s. And I remember that there was a huge push from the school district that she was not allowed to teach them how to use condoms or even hand out condoms. And I remember she had like hundreds in our car um, so that she could give them to students like low key if they needed. <laughs> and I remember one time she got pulled over and she went to pull out her... <laughs> Her license and registration and hundreds of condoms came out. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, she's ahead of her time. <laughs> I mean, God bless the sex educators who are getting the education to young people no matter what it takes, including mm -hmm. your mom. Like, yeah. bless. That's amazing. I, I've heard this quote, and I, I think it's definitely about parenting, but I think it applies much larger, which is, you know, overprotective parents don't make good kids. They make sneaky kids. Your kids aren't going to stop doing something. People aren't going to stop having sex because you don't tell them about it. They're just going to do it in a very unsafe way. Yeah. So I, I, I love that you hit on that. And that shame, the, the sneakiness that comes out of shame or fear of punishment also means that if your daughter or son or non-gender identifying kid doesn't feel like they can talk to you and something's going wrong in their relationship, they're genuinely in a lot of danger, mm. right? That, that silence isn't just like bad and icky and like drives a wedge between you and your kids, but actually can really put your kids in danger if they don't know that they can go to you if they're being hurt. Absolutely. And I, I don't think enough parents think about that side of it because parents really want to feel like they have control. And I understand that. Yeah, yeah. We all, we all want to feel like we have control. Right. <laughs> Where would you say the LGBTQIA plus youth fit into sex education? Are they represented? Are they not? Is there any language for them? Well, let's talk about that. That brings me to sort of the uh, the last bucket that I didn't talk about of types of sex ed that are taught in some schools in, in America, which is tends to get called comprehensive sex education. I don't love talk, calling them that because nobody knows what that means. I tend to call it inclusive quality sex and relationships education. And add a plus in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And that kind of curriculum really is LGBTQ inclusive and affirming, right? So a lot of the times when you get abstinence plus stuff, it's really still focused on like not getting girls pregnant and assumes that only heterosexual sex is happening. Um, it's, it's only when you get to comprehensive sex ed that you have the kind of sex education that recognizes that kids come in all flavors, right? And, <laughs> and have a, a bunch of different kinds of attractions and interests and identities and that they're all fundamentally okay. I'm curious about which of your essays that you have written means the most to you. Do you have any that you've gotten a surprising response from people? This is like a genuinely impossible question. The essay that comes to mind when you ask me the one that means the most to me, which which basically means it's what means the most to me right now, like what's on my heart, is um, an essay I wrote some years ago after Caitlyn Jenner came out as trans and was on the cover of Vanity Fair and there was a whole furor about 
who is who gets to call themselves a woman. It's an essay that I wrote for Dame magazine, which I think is still online somewhere, about my experiences dating and being with a trans man who decided to medically transition and and being vulnerable that I struggled with that, right? And and talking about yeah, I get it. I get the questions. I get the discomfort that comes up for people. But here's what I came to understand through that process, which is basically that trans people don't owe us anything, right? Like that they're just trying to live their lives and they don't need to be ideal feminists or any other thing. They just need to get to be people who define their own lives. That was a really vulnerable thing to write because it doesn't exactly show me in the best light. You know, I would like to write an essay that was like, I didn't have a moment's hesitation. Um, (laughs) And I got some pushback, but I'm of the belief that when you invite people to identify with, with your vulnerability, it helps them be more vulnerable. And I think that we need more humility and curiosity, those of us who are cis, about... Um, trans people and trans identities and trans lives right now more than I ever. love the fact that you brought mm-hmm. up curiosity because of course this is the So Curious podcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm just pandering. Yes, <laughs> please continue to do so. The thing that stood out to me and what you just said is deciding and choosing and I'm curious what making a choice does to the brain wiring or neurons like you know being secure enough, seen enough, comfortable enough, safe enough to say I choose this. I don't know what maybe there's parts of the brain that lights up and you feel great about it and releases endorphins. Not sure. We probably should bring on a scientist to talk about this yeah. stuff. But <laughs> that, that kind of stood out to me when you talked about, uh, I guess, a trans person's just being a person deciding to just be and letting them make those decisions, letting mm-hmm. someone choose. And that kind of ties back into consent as well. Like, you know, choosing is such a powerful thing. It's such an affirming thing. Um, and I, I'm just curious what that does to the brain and therefore the nervous system and therefore the heart and the lungs and, and all those other different things. Yeah. And like the idea of teaching young children, young, about ideas like it's your body. And so much I feel like has come from that movement because we're teaching young children the basic things of like, I used to nanny a three-year-old and something that the parents would always say is adults shouldn't have secrets with kids. And if an adult ever has a secret with you, that shouldn't be happening and you need to come and tell us. That's not stuff that was talked about even when, you know, I'm 27, even when I was three years old. And now the push I've been seeing with friends who are having kids and, and the idea of, no, my kid doesn't have to hug their great aunt if they don't want to at Thanksgiving. And the great aunt's probably not going to like that, but they don't have to. <laughs> that is one of the best ways to lay the groundwork for consent, because that's consent, right? Like, it's not sexual. I mean, it can. It's it's important when when you're being sexual with somebody else, but consent is about bodily autonomy, bodily sovereignty. Like your body is yours and you get to decide who interacts with it how. Now with really little kids, that's a little more complicated because parents have to keep them safe and healthy. And so sometimes you have to brush your teeth when you don't want to. And my, <laughs> I, have, I have so many friends who with, who've raised kids who've like texted me and been like, you ruined this. Like <laughs> I taught them consent and now they're like, my body is mine. And they like <laughs> won't shower. Um, yeah, no bad time. That's rough. That's complicated. But but it's actually so important because by the time it gets to be applied to sexual interactions, it's completely second nature. Mm. And when kids know they have the right to be treated that way, it's easier for them to recognize that everybody else mm. has the right to be mm. treated that way. Is there any particular thoughts that you hope people take away from your messaging when you speak or you write that it is that you would want someone in a sentence or a paragraph to take away? 
What I want people to take away is that we all have the right to love and be loved on our own terms. Mm. And we also have the right to know all the things we need to know in order to make that happen. That's perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Jacqueline. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Jacqueline Freeman, thank you so much for this conversation and these insights. We really, really greatly appreciate it. And thank you for being on the Soul Curious Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. What I really appreciated most about what she said was it seemed like she was prioritizing comfort and engaging in the dialogue. Mm. Um, There's a lot of discomfort around just sex in public spaces, speaking about it, talking about your own urges and all those different things. And so eliminating shame is kind of like the first step to engaging with it honestly and openly and then finding useful, factual information because we're all making decisions about our health and, you know, kind of getting rid of shame is one of the first things to do. Yeah. You hear this a lot about mental health. People say mental health is health and sexual health is health, right? It's a huge part of our lives. I think it's just so cool that obviously someone has to start this conversation. I love that she did it. No matter what age we are, this kind of info matters. It helps people make healthy decisions around both our mental and physical health. But as we're seeing in the U.S., guidelines for teaching sex and sexuality in schools are in flux. Luckily, there are experts out there today who are rethinking sex ed and getting kids the information they need. Today, we are joined by Janelle Bryan. Janelle, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Where are you from? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Janelle. So I am a health educator, professor, sex educator. My work lies in the intersection between health equity and pleasure. I'm also the creator of a web series called Sex Redefined, where I talk to marginalized voices about what sex means to them and the future of sexuality. Hell yeah. (laughs) What's an example as to how a person's socioeconomic status can impact their access to health services, and thus the quality of their lives. If we look at COVID, for example, most of the people who have passed away due to COVID was because of underlying conditions, and these underlying conditions are specifically linked to their economic status, whether that is asthma due to environmental toxins, heart disease, diabetes, all of these comorbidities that they were already experiencing are amplified because of their socioeconomic status. If you look at redlining, what's happened in the 30s, two-thirds of the communities that were redlined still experienced poor health outcomes than neighboring neighborhoods. So our economic status, unfortunately, in this country, in this capitalistic society, is directly linked to our health. Right. And to break it down to basic terms, you're talking about what you can afford, right? The, yes. <laughs> you know, what health services you have access to based on the money you may or may not have. Right. And even where you live, Philadelphia is known to be a food desert. So even if you do have the money, if you don't have access, do you really have choice? Mm. Yeah. So my question for you is, in your experience in your field, what are some of the biggest differences you've noticed between communities? For example, like a more affluent community versus a more marginalized community as far as sex ed and health goes. Ooh, a quick breakdown. So there's 50 states in D.C., right? Only 39 states in the country mandate sex ed. So the jurisdiction of sex ed goes to the state. So that means they can say whether or not they teach it and what they teach. Of those 39 states, I believe about 20 say that their sex ed has to be medically accurate. That means the information that they teach is published by a medical professional, Mm. which means that literally they can teach anything they want to. And also these are only in public schools, right, that they have jurisdiction over. 
So right there, state to state and school to school, you're already looking at disparities in sex ed. What's so interesting about that is that even from the starting point, you said only 39 states? Only 39 states in D.C. So as a country, we're already kind of behind the eight ball. Like, you know, we're not all on the same page. We're not. And Pennsylvania also does not mandate sex ed. Mm. So, Which is insane. <laughs> I was telling Bay about how I grew up with a mom who was a sex ed teacher in the <laughs> Philadelphia school district. Mm-hmm. And um, we lived in the suburbs. And but she worked in the Philly school district, and I remember her saying what a struggle it was just trying to get the school district to do, you know, quote unquote comprehensive sex mm. education, right? <laughs> Using things like being able to give them condoms yes. and things like that, and the school just being like, no, it's abstinence encouraged, you know, yes. whatever you want to call it, yeah. And it's still the same way. Even now, even though sex ed isn't mandated, if you are teaching sex ed, it has to be abstinence encouraged in Pennsylvania. Wow. Which is so wild to me because I, and I went to a, a high school like in Montgomery County right mm-hmm. outside of Philly. And I wouldn't say it was abstinence encouraged. Well, it kind of was, I guess. They they didn't, they <laughs> didn't, guess it, yeah. they didn't tell, yeah, it's kind of like now that I'm an adult, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, damn, like, did they actually kind of encourage it? Because it was basically, I don't know, what did you, yes, that you were in the you. Philly school district? Absolutely, I was in public school, and I think we're all collectively as adults looking back at everything that we've been taught, <laughs> and they're like, whoa, that wasn't <laughs> the best. And yeah. Because so, for me, it was shock value. I don't know if that was the same for you. It was mm-hmm. just like you get into a room, they put on a projector, oh, and yes. then like, here's a bunch of terrifying pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you I've know seen what I mean? video up close more than I am. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I remember they made us watch watch a footage of uh, in a late-term abortion. And I remember feeling so sick to my stomach because I'm watching this very, like, live graphic, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's like surgery, and it was completely a scare tactic, right? They're using it by saying, if you have sex... This is, you're going to have to have this surgery. Yeah, it's insane. It's interesting how we respond to pleasure. Um, And this is kind of a segue because your website says that you want to focus on pleasure as a means of political change and positive force towards social equity. Could you explain that? And, 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 and can pleasure be like a data point? Are we talking about like five yes, three O's, <laughs> six moans? Like how do you make this into data and then study it and, you know, communicate to the, to the world about this? Yes. And there are people doing sex ed research now and like research about pleasure and that I'm a dork, so that really excites me. <laughs> but when we talk about social equity, we talk about politics and policy, there's power in pleasure. We hear all the time that you can't pour from an empty cup, and it's kind of played out, but it's true. When you are feeling good and feeling at your best, you're able to find community with others, and that is power. That community makes change, as we have seen and we're going to continue to see. So using pleasure as just a jumping-off point, you're able to connect with other people. You're able to do the work that is needed to make change. Mm. Can you make a pie chart <laughs> yeah. out of pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Can you do that? Can you like make data spreads out of uh, pleasure points or measuring pleasure? I'm sure you can. You can make data points out of everything. Jeez, what I so- oh, I'm so sorry. Siri <laughs> wants to know about pleasure. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, she can join in too. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, you're good. When I say pleasure, I'm not using that as a euphemism for sex. I mean pleasure. And the definition of pleasure is enjoyment. Right. And that looks different for everyone also. 
Yeah. I hear you have a web series. I do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So it's called Sex Redefined. I'm just talking to marginalized voices about what sex means to them. I've been teaching sex ed for over 10 years now, and I enjoy that. I'm a professor, but I recognize that my students are privileged. Like, if you're is sitting in my class, you have the means or you have found the means to be here for me to teach you. And I want to make education accessible. Sex ed should be accessible. So just by having these conversations and putting them online, I feel like it's able to educate people in a different way. And like you talked about your sex ed in school, sex ed can look so many different ways. It shouldn't be scare tactics. It shouldn't be pictures or videos. It could be conversations held in safe spaces and allowing people into those conversations to watch them also have conversations of their own. In a perfect world where you get to run the public school system <laughs> yes. in the whole United States, <laughs> what age or what grade do you think is the time in which we should start uh, enforcing these thoughts into into students? I've taught sex ed as young as five years old. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm not talking about you know penis and vagina. I'm talking about consent. That's usually where I start. Because people having agency over their own body is so important. And that impacts your sex life. That impacts your life, period, as you move through it. So having conversations, it is not a conversation. Like, we should be talking about sex, I mean, for me, all the time. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> throughout the lifespan, because as we change, you know, we need to have information that changes with us. So having these conversations, especially from a young age, helps normalize the conversation. So it's not weird or awkward. It's just like, oh, I've heard these terms before. And these are just body parts. They're not sexualizing the word penis or vagina. It's not a scary word. It's a word and it's a body part that some people have. When I'm thinking about my first sex ed class, I feel like the first three classes of the semester was just everybody getting the giggles out because yeah. everybody's like, I've never said the word vagina to a teacher before. Yeah, what if you get those giggles out at five? So by the time you're 12, you can now have a full, like, you know. Right. Five. And then we're going to one day hopefully have five-year-olds who are more mature than like 50-year-olds <laughs> who are like, don't talk it's, about it's that. It's absolutely happening. These, yeah. these kids are yeah. evolved. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How have stories that you've heard from mm -hmm. specifically people of color in terms of pleasure, been neglected to be told? Yeah, so across the board, sex isn't something that's spoken about in this country. But when it is spoken about, or when you see it in the media, the people are young, white, able-bodied, skinny, conventionally attractive, all of these things, heterosexual. Mostly all of these things, an amalgamation of the, that person, that is not representative of most of our population. So if you don't see yourself in that, it's hard to know that you're deserving of it. Representation matters across the board, even with sex. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you are seeing these people having pleasure, but you never see yourself, you start wondering, am I deserving of it? Or can I talk about this out loud? Because the only people that get to talk about it are the people that look like that. And that's not me. I so appreciate you bringing that up. Mm -hmm. There's a show on uh, a streaming platform. I don't know if I want to like call it out or anything like that. But on this show, mm -hmm. there's a scene in one of the latest seasons where there's a differently able person sex scene. And I was just so struck by that, that they would take that on. Mm -hmm. It was done in such a 
loving and gentle and caring way. I was mm. I was blown away. I was like, this is cool. Like they should win an award for this. <laughs> I was gonna say, like I, you know, I'm still a, a young white girl in her 20s, sis, and all of that. But um, I have a terminal lung disease, and so I'm often on oxygen. And no one ever prepared me for how to have sex with oxygen on. You know, <laughs> that was never something I ever saw portrayed. I never felt comfortable asking doctors, like, can I take it off when you know all of that. And yeah, like you said seeing examples of not able-bodied people still finding ways to achieve pleasure because you hit on something really excellent, which is it's almost like people view pleasure as a luxury, as though if you Mm. aren't of a certain class, of a certain race, of a certain sexuality, gender, you don't get it. You have to earn it in a sense, Mm -hmm. and which is such a messed up My mind is blown right now. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, I'm sure this has been said before. I don't think I'm revolutionizing it. But yeah, the idea that we all have to earn pleasure, that if you're born more affluent, you're born whiter, you know, you're born more heterosexual, more in the gender norms, then you automatically get pleasure, whereas other people have to earn it. Yes, we have to work for it, right? Yes, right. And I'm also curious, so you've been in this field, you said, for 10 years, right? Have you seen anything major that you've been able to see as a big positive change in the last 10 years? Give us some hope. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, gosh, yes, change is happening. Sorry, let's not say big, but we are taking steps, and that is very important. For better or for worse, social media has its issues, but it has (laughs) helped because people are able to find community with like-minded folks on the internet and on social media. And no matter what age I've taught, people just want to feel seen. They want to feel quote-unquote normal. They're not the only person doing what they're doing. So to be able to just open your phone and to see other people that look like you, that you identify with, doing the thing that you want to do, that you have secretly been doing or you want to get into, is powerful. The ability to make connections in that way has been revolutionary. Do you have anything that stands out that you've experienced with a student, something that was upsetting maybe because it was a lack in prior knowledge Mm -hmm. or maybe, you know, something on the opposite? Like, have you had any meaningful stories that stick out? So many stories, but I'm just thinking about something that happened recently. I was working with this organization and they're like, hey, can you come in and talk to our students? And these are students who are on, you know, the autism spectrum because a student got expelled and their parents fought it because the student went home, asked their parents about sex. Like, what is sex? The parents kind of clammed up. They're like, oh, it's something that moms and dads do. So the next day, the student went to school and Googled mom, dad, sex in the school computer. And And they got expelled. And they got expelled. And the parents came in and they talked to the school and they talked to the teachers and they fought it as they should. But also it just shows how important sex ed is. Because the parents, they recognize they didn't know how to have that conversation, but also that even though you don't have the words to have that conversation, that doesn't mean the kids aren't going to look it up. That means they're not going to, they're still going to want to know. And I find it so ironic in that this child was looking to learn. This child yes. was very curious and wanted information. And as an education space, we should be nourishing that. 
in some, you know, way, expelling someone seems like the exact opposite. Yes. Oh, you want to learn about something? <laughs> right, because this child will always have some sort of negative connotation mm-hmm. when it comes to sex, some feeling of shame because they were punished for wanting to learn. That's Wow, that's a really interesting story. That's that's awesome. Yeah, 100%. Janelle, thank you so much for coming, oh, first of all. I really appreciate you. <laughs> this was incredibly enlightening. It was, it was. Thank you to Janelle Bryan and Jacqueline Friedman. And that's a wrap for today's episode. But next week, we are branching out in how we think about relationships. And we are talking all about non-monogamy. Relationships beyond just two partners. Monogamy. (laughs) (laughs) This and more on next week's episode. And please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. I am the Bull Bay. Hi, I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And we will see you all next week. See you guys. So Curious is presented by the Franklin Institute. Special thanks to Franklin Institute producers, Joy Montefusco and Dr. Jayatri Das. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. The managing producer is Emily Cherish. The producer is Liliana Green. The lead audio engineer and editor is Christian Cederland. The editors are Lauren DeLuca and Justin Berger. The science writer is Kira Vayette. And the graphic designer is Emma Sager. 